Again, I want to welcome you, welcome you back to Hebrews chapter 8. Tonight, as we enter into Hebrews chapter 8, when we left off in chapter 7, we find that chapter 7 talked about a description of Melchizedek and his priesthood. And then it it told uh, from chapter 7, verse 4 onward, it says that Christ is superior to Melchizedek. And then in verse 11, it talked about the imperfection of Aaron's priesthood. And when we enter into chapter 8, we're going to be talking about something a little bit different now. And he's moving from the priesthood now to the covenants. As we begin, notice he's going to emphasize a better covenant. What does it mean by that? It's better than the covenant that was made during the time of Moses. As we look at verses 1 through 6, here again, a better covenant will be the main theme of those verses. All right, chapter 8, verse 1 says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest, which is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Notice, it has taken Paul seven chapters to get to the main point. You know, a lot of times we we accuse preachers of rambling. Well, it took him seven chapters to get to the main point. And notice what this says here about verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. This is what it says in the New King James. It's taken him seven chapters to get to the main point before applying that point. This main theme is that Jesus Christ is our high priest and that he is seated at the right hand of the Father on a heavenly throne. He is a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that the Lord erected. Notice that the Lord erected. It was God's will that this sanctuary in heaven be constructed. And the earthly one was made after it. Now, as we look at this, the only place, only in the holy place, are two thrones symbolized. We've talked about that before. That's depicted by the table of showbread, where two piles of bread and a double crown around the border of it characterize the Father and the Son seated side by side in the outer apartment of the sanctuary. The table of showbread wasn't very big, actually, probably about oh, this big, and about maybe this wide. And it had these two stacks of bread. The bread actually symbolized the different tribes of Israel. But Christ is the ultimate Israel. And as you look at this table of showbread, according to Mervyn Maxwell, He says, around the edges of this table, around the border of it, there was a double crown. It's the only place that that occurs that I know of. This symbolizes the Father and the Son sitting as the ruling or presiding individuals in that sanctuary. Look at Hebrews 8.2. It says that, He was a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Man had nothing to do with setting up the heavenly sanctuary. It's in the heavenly sanctuary that atonement would be made for man, that it would be applied for man. Now, since it is true, it is in the true tabernacle and God, not man, who erected it, It obviously can't be the earthly one, but rather the heavenly one is being depicted here because it was men who built the earthly tabernacle. So 
it's obviously talking about the one in heaven. Look at verse 3. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. Christ had to come in with a sacrifice. What was that sacrifice? Himself, right? A high priest, as he was, he's to offer gifts. His gifts were the gifts of grace. His sacrifice was himself. And it's necessary that he does this. This is done after the lamb has been offered. So here again, I want you to notice that Jesus, when he was born as the baby in Bethlehem, he was then to become, well, he was the Messiah, but he would be the sacrifice. He would be the Lamb of God. Once that is done at the cross, he says, it is finished. What is finished? The sacrifice is finished. He's done being the lamb. Now he turns to become the high priest. When he is done being the high priest, again, it is finished. Then he becomes the king of kings and lord of lords. If you look at Jesus in Revelation, when he comes back again, he's not wearing a high priest's turban or miter because he's done that. He's coming back with a crown as king. And so these different roles that he plays in the plan of salvation all indicate that God is working out a master plan that we may find atonement and togetherness with him. Look at 8.4. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. Okay, so if he were an earthly priest, there wouldn't be any need for him because you already got human beings doing that. He's going to do something that human beings can't do. If this were the earthly priesthood, Christ would not be needed since men could care for the earthly sanctuary. The law governing the priesthood and the sacrifices only allowed for Levites to work in the sanctuary, not those who are of the tribe of Judah, of which Christ was. And so it sounds repetitious, what he's saying here. It sounds repetitious. We talked about these in earlier chapters. But don't forget, in this chapter, chapter 8, he's getting to the main point. And as he's getting to the main point, He's summarizing a lot of these things that he had said earlier. Why? Because he's going to be moving on now. After chapter 8, he's going to be moving on. He's about to talk about a new covenant, a new contract, a new agreement that God has with his people. And notice what it says in verse 5. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. You will find very few churches today that talk about the heavenly sanctuary. A lot of them don't even recognize there's a heavenly sanctuary because they don't understand what happened to Christ after he ascended to heaven. You see, they want to perpetuate the earthly priesthood. But the scripture tells us that that came to an end. So what is Christ doing there? He's applying the blood that he shed at the cross, he's applying that to our account in the heavenly judgment. Now, notice these two texts, because I'm going to come back to them in a moment. Exodus 25:40. it says, And look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. 
So when Moses was up on the mountain, he saw this heavenly sanctuary. And God says, study it well, because I want you to make a scale model of it on earth. So Moses himself attests to having seen this. And then in Colossians 2.7, where it says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now, what do these two texts have to do with each other? How are they connected? Notice that Exodus 25.40 is quoted here. Colossians 2.17 also speaks of the shadow of things to come. This idea of shadow of things, this supports the Pauline authorship of this letter because this is language that Paul himself uses. Okay? So the earthly sanctuary in Moses' day was a copy or a shadow of things to come. It was to represent the Messiah. The the ceremonial days would tell about the work of the Messiah. They all had something to do with him. The type of offerings that they gave, they all had something to do with the Messiah. I think I, I think it was here that I mentioned that back in Leviticus 23, let me turn to it here. Here it outlines the different ceremonial days, the Jewish festival days. And as we look at these, the Jews knew this in early times, but then they forgot about them. But as you look at this, notice that in chapter 23, verses 1 through 3, that talks about the Sabbath of creation, the seventh-day Sabbath. But it doesn't point to the coming of the Messiah. That points back to creation. That's part of the moral law. That's not part of the ceremonial law. Because it's not pointing forward, it's pointing backwards. And they even had different types of uh, sacrifices that they made. But as we look at verses 4 and 5, it talks about the Passover. What was the Passover lamb? It was the Lamb of God, you see, who would give his life for the people. And then verses 6 through 8, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is Christ the victor. He had gained the victory. By his death, he has gained eternal life for his followers, his people. If you look at 9, verse 9, you get into the first fruits. And when we start talking about the first fruits, we talk about the resurrection and the ascension of Christ as Lord and victor over the grave. He ascends to heaven here. When we turn to verse 15 down through 23, it talks about Pentecost. Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. Remember that Jesus walked among his disciples after his resurrection. He walked 40 days among the people. And then he ascended to heaven and told them to go pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for 10 days. 40 and 10 is 50. And it was on Pentecost that they would, whenever there was a new high priest installed, they would usually do it on Pentecost. And they would pour oil on his head and it would drip down and drip off the bottom of his robes. The Holy Spirit of Christ, when Christ was installed as the high priest, that oil drips down, ignites as tongues of fire upon the heads of the apostles. And Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary goes forward. And the ministry of the apostles and the church go forward on earth. Then after that, the Feast of Trumpets in verse 23 to 25. This is warning. This actually takes place in the holy place. 
for the most part. It's warning that get your act together because the judgment is coming. And then finally, when we reach verse 26 over to 32, we find here it's not talking about the holy place, but the most holy place. It's the day of atonement where the high priest goes before the Father to make reconciliation for all that he's done in our behalf. You see. And then finally, when you reach 23 onward, you get into the Feast of Tabernacles. This is pointing forward to the happy ever after. This is pointing forward when he would make all things new. And as we look at this, these festival days all related to the work of the Messiah. They were shadows of things that were to come. And as the Lord fulfilled these, and as he fulfilled the role of the the lamb that was slain, all of these things then reached their fulfillment at the crucifixion of Christ. That's what Paul means in Colossians 2 when he says they were nailed to the cross. Now, they were part of the ceremonial law. They were not part of the moral law. Just because the word Sabbath is used for these doesn't mean that they're the same because one is based in the Ten Commandments. The other in the books of Moses. One was written on stone. The rest were written on parchment. One, the weekly Sabbath, that was put inside the ark, which sits in the holy place, most holy place. The ceremonial laws, they were put in the side of the ark, indicating their temporariness. And so we find here that These things come to their fulfillment as the pattern is completed. There's no longer a need for an earthly priesthood in an earthly temple. We have a heavenly priest and a heavenly temple. These things were radical when he told the Jews this, you see, because he was making an application of the Messiah that was hinted at all through the Old Testament. And many of the ancient rabbis recognized these things. But since they had drifted away and gotten their nationalism in the way, and we've got to be careful of that. I believe in nationalism. I mean, I I love America. But we've got to be careful that our nationalism doesn't supersede the Scriptures, you see. When you do that, you're skating on thin ice. Therefore, those priests only served a pattern of the true tabernacle and the true priesthood. The earthly model had two compartments, one with two thrones, the holy place, and one with one throne, the most holy place. And that was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. To sit at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is representing the Father, he must have entered into the first apartment, as high priest to minister the blood of the Lamb. The earthly pattern would allow this, as symbolized by the two piles of bread and the two crowns on the table. And that's according to Maxwell. You can find that, actually. I just picked up a copy of Maxwell's book here that was on the back table. God cares. You'll find that Mervyn Maxwell speaks of that in this book. As we move on, let's look at Hebrews 8, 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. Now notice that, a more excellent ministry. How could Christ be more excellent than he was before? But he has a more excellent ministry. Why? Because now he's the high priest, you see. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. He's the one that administers the new covenant, which was established upon better promises. What are those better promises? We'll touch on them. Notice that 2 Corinthians 3, 6-8, and Hebrews 7, 22 are quoted here. 
These texts will be referred to in a moment, but notice what 2 Corinthians 3.6 says. 6 through 8. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. You know, you can do things, you can do the letter of the law, and it's very mechanical. But God wants us to have the Spirit of the law within us. You can have religion that's very liturgical, it's very mechanical. But is that really pleasing to God? It's a dead form of Christianity. He wants us to have a live, vibrant Christianity. That's what he's talking about. Look at verse 7. But if the ministration of death, written and engraved in stone, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. Moses, when he came down from the mountain, he had to put something over his head because his face just glowed from being in the presence of God. And look at verse 8. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? You know, the old King James is a little awkward. But basically, it's saying, hey man, the ministration of the Spirit really makes a person's relationship really glorious, stand out. Look at Hebrews 7.22. It says, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Now, a testament, that word is going to come up again in the next chapter. Basically, what is a testament? Your last blank and blank. Will and testament, right? In plain words, a testament is a will. Okay? Now, you can say, I will, I will leave all my earthly possessions to Cheryl. Okay? But in the meantime, I'm going to spend them all. Right? Can she say, okay, I'll take the house now. No, she can't take the house now, can she? Because I'm still alive. She has to wait till I kick the bucket before she could come in and take the house. You see, because a testament only kicks in once there's a death. Once a person has died, then the testament kicks in. And the agreement. So when we're talking about the Old Testament... And the New Testament, we're talking about a contract that's built around the death. And he'll bring this out later, especially in, in the uh, next chapter. But notice what it says here. In 2 Corinthians 3, 6-8, and Hebrews seven twenty two, in relation to this text, because he is more exalted than human priests, He is a never-dying mediator who offers a better covenant with an unchangeable law. Remember, the law had to change because the priesthood changed. But this is an unchangeable law. The priesthood would never change again. Not the one that was nailed to the cross. Therefore, he offers better immutable promises based on his eternal character and life. So we find that the promises are based on the high priest. The high priest was extremely important in the whole uh, Jewish economy. Now he starts talking about the new covenant, a new covenant. Verses 7 through 13 speak about this new covenant and uh, explain it more. Notice what it says in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. In plain words, if there wasn't a problem with that first covenant, you wouldn't need a second one, right? All right. Let me go back a little bit further. 
when God said to Abraham, all this land will be yours and you will have a zillion children. Had Abraham done anything to gain that promise? Abraham had a few character flaws too he needed to overcome, right? But had Abraham done anything? That's it. He believed he had faith. So Abraham's promise was a message of righteousness by faith, right? That was before Moses was even born. So you can see that the covenant that God made with Abraham was a covenant of righteousness by faith. Now, when you get to the time of Moses, and they get to Mount Sinai, God gives them the commandments, the Ten Commandments and all, and what do the people say? All that you say, we will do. In plain words, we will fulfill it all. They were basing it on their own ability to fulfill it, you see. And that's not going to work. They, God said, okay, if you think you can do it, go ahead. And so the Old Testament was based on them trying to fulfill what they promised they would do. And they fell flat on their face. And then comes along Christ with a new covenant. The new covenant is the same as the old covenant. Except it's not built on what you can do. It's built on what Christ can do. You see the difference? So what was the problem with the old covenant? What was the fault or the failure of the old covenant? There was nothing wrong with the covenant at all. It was that they thought they could do it. And Christ instead in the new, he's the one that does it. Which means that we have to have faith in Christ, right? Isn't that called righteousness by faith? Now stop and think about that. Because if we go all the way back to Abraham, the new covenant or the new testament, if you want to call it that, the new covenant or or contract with God, is actually older than the Old Covenant. See what I mean? You had righteousness by faith. Then came this idea, well, we can do it ourselves. And God says, okay. But then comes along Christ, and now we have to have faith in Him, that He's the one that's going to fulfill it. So faith, They try to do it themselves, and then faith again comes to the forefront. God hasn't changed. He still says, I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. That's what he told them in the old covenant. That's what he tells them in the new covenant, you see. But it will be based upon faith. It will be a spiritual communication. Notice what it says, if. If indicates a conditional statement. The verse is self-explanatory. Let's look first at Exodus 3, verse 8. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. In plain words, I'm going to take you out of Egypt and I am going to deliver you into the promised land. That was part of the old covenant. What does Christ do? He takes us out of the bondage of sin And he will deliver us into the promised land. The meek shall inherit the earth. Not this old sinful earth, but the earth that's made new. He's going to deliver us from that which is uh, 
uh, evil and disobedient. Notice now in verses 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed. Notice the if. It's conditional. If you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine. Now this word peculiar. God wants you to be peculiar. And I must admit, there are some of us that are pretty peculiar. Right? Does this say that God is calling us to be weirdos? Well, in a sense, yeah, because we're weird to the rest of the world. But what does it say? The word peculiar today means uh, a person who's kind of square, right? As a matter of fact, one, one person said, they're like this. And he drew a triangle. And they said, what, what's that? He said, well, that's a square with something missing. You see, is God calling us to be a square with something missing? You see, the word peculiar has changed through the years. But the word peculiar is a positive thing. If you have a peculiar uh, trait or a peculiar talent, that means that that is special to you. Yes, it sets you apart from the rest. And notice what he says, that we are to be a peculiar treasure unto him. We are to be a valuable people unto him. So yes, God does want us to be peculiar. He doesn't want us to be like the rest of the world. He's calling us out of Babylonian confusion, you see. This was all part of what he told them in Exodus. But they didn't get the point. They wanted to be like the neighbors. So they started to adopt the God of the Canaanites and all the uh, surrounding neighborhood. Instead of leading them to the God of heaven, they instead went and joined them in their false worship. And in the last days, we find through the ecumenical movement and everything else that's going on, many people are willing to accept false ideas. That's why it's called Babylon or confusion. He says, come out of there. Come into the word of God. Come apart, be separated from the world. This is what makes us a peculiar people in the last days, you see. And this is what he was trying to tell them. And he says, if you obey my voice, if you hear me. Now, remember, we talked about the uh, warnings of Hebrew. The third warning was dullness of hearing. In plain words, they weren't listening to his voice. And because of that, God had to go to plan B. Look at Hebrews 8.8. For finding fault with them. Some people will say, you know, God's first covenant, it was faulty. God had a faulty covenant. No, God didn't have a faulty covenant. He had a faulty people. In plain words, the failure wasn't on God's part, it's on our part. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now that's interesting, because in the book of Hebrews, by that time, the house of Israel had disappeared with the Assyrians, right? And it was now the house of Judah, the Jews. There are some who see in this that this is referring to spiritual Israel. Why? Because the house of Israel had been assimilated into the nations. Sometimes they're called the lost tribes of Israel, but people have weird interpretations of what that means. But they had been assimilated into the nations. So basically, what he's saying is, I will make a new covenant with 
the house of the Gentiles and the house of the Jews. I will be an equal opportunity Savior. I will be a Savior to the Jew. I will be a Savior to the Gentile under this new covenant. It will be not exclusive to the Jews. It will not be to a nation, but to a people, you see. It's not to a piece of real estate. It's to a people in the world. Now notice, the new covenant is old. The fault is not with God or the covenant, but with men. He begins to quote Jeremiah 31, 31 through 36. And here it continues on through verse 11. Now as we look at this, now Jeremiah was before the time of Christ, right? He's in the Old Testament. But notice what he says here. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He is saying, there's going to be a new covenant. And Jesus hadn't even been born yet. Jeremiah knew that there was something that was going to take place later on. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers of the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. I was faithful to them, but they went chasing other gods. This is the whole background for Hosea, right? Hosea was the faithful husband, but his wife was a harlot, you see. It symbolizes God trying to reach his people, and they're running all around the place. By the way, Hosea, Hosea, O.C., Joshua, and Jesus are all the same name. Savior. It means the one who saves. So even the book of Hosea, you see the Savior trying to save his family, and here's his wife running around town. And yet, he loves her still and takes her back. So we see here, even in the Old Testament, as they looked at that, they would have seen the love of God. They would have seen salvation by faith rather than doing mechanical works. And so we find here, it says in verse 33, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it on their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. The Old Testament, the Ten Commandments were written on stone. He says, I'm going to write them on your heart. I'm going to write them on your character, in your mind, in your hand. And when we get to the book of Revelation, where does the devil want to put the mark of the beast? Right? Your forehead. Don't you think that will affect your hand and what you do? You see, he's saying that I want a heartfelt religion. And then verse 34. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, when does that take place? When is it that God has forgiven his people and we don't have to tell them to know the Lord anymore? It's after the judgment. It's after, after Christ finishes his work in the heavenly tabernacle, you see. By that time, they will either have accepted Christ and the righteous will be righteous still. Or they will have made their decision to reject Christ and the wicked will be wicked still. And the righteous won't have to tell each other, you know, brother, you really need to be converted and know the Lord. 
Why? Because they already have. Their sins are forgiven, you see. And so this covenant that he's talking about, which was in the future, in the time of Jeremiah, he takes it all the way up to the judgment. He takes it up to the cleansing of the tabernacle in heaven. When all things are made new. So this is why I said before, the new covenant really is the old covenant, because God doesn't change, but it has a different individual who's going to make it happen. Instead of you making it happen, Christ is going to make it happen. And it's based on his righteousness and his good works, not on your good works and your righteousness. Because we can't save ourselves. Look at verse 9. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. Now notice Lot. When Lot, uh, you know, when Christ came with the the angels and talked to Abraham, and Abraham dickered with him on how many people had to be righteous down in Sodom before he'd spare it. Notice that the angels went down, and when they brought Lot and his daughters and wife out of Sodom, because it's about to be destroyed, they were dragging their heels. They didn't want to go. And notice that the scripture says the angels took them by the hand and pulled them out. The angels took and led them out. Man, does God have to do that with us sometimes to save us? Because we are so determined to do things our way and we enjoy sin so much, we're kind of dragging our heels. And don't tell me you don't love sin. If you don't love sin, you'd stop doing it, wouldn't you? There has to be something pleasurable about it, or you wouldn't do it, right? I'm not talking about the sinful state. I'm talking about the acts of sin. And sometimes God has to take us by the hand and say, come on with me. And notice that's what he had to do here. He said, I led them out of the land of Egypt. They were still kicking and screaming. I don't want to go. I love leeks and onions. I want to form a back to Egypt committee. When they got out in the desert, that's what they did. They formed a back to Egypt committee. Remember the good old days with the taskmasters? Ah, those whips across our back. They felt so good. You know, sometimes we are very reluctant follow the Lord and his leading because they continued not in my covenant. What's that saying? They forgot the covenant. They forgot what it was about. They were going through the motions but they didn't have the heart with it. Is it possible to have a form of Christianity without the power thereof? You see. Basically, that's what it's talking about. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord. God is not a respecter of persons. Those who went into the wilderness were God's people. They were spiritual Israel at the time. And yet, even though they were part of the church, Moses and and, uh, Caleb and Joshua... They stood firm for the Lord, and the Lord blessed them for it. But Corinth, Dathan, and Byram, they were church members, but they were lost. The ground opened up, and down they went. You see, even though they were a part of the people of God, they were in Israel, but they were not of Israel. You can be in the church and not of the church. You can be on the Sabbath, but not into the spirit of the Sabbath. Your mind can be racing all through the Sabbath of all the things you want to do and everything, and you miss the blessing of it. 
So there's a psychological, a spiritual uh, involvement in all of this. And that's why it's called spiritual Israel. So, talking about the change. They did not continue to understand or apply the meaning of the symbols of the Old Testament covenant. They forgot what they were supposed to symbolize. What they were looking for. Thus, disobedience and misapplication nullified its effectiveness and necessitated a change. In plain words, it lost its effectiveness because it wasn't getting the point across. Their hearts were not changed. As far as they were concerned, the commandments of God and the Messiah were academic. They were still written on stone. They weren't being applied to their hearts. They were talking about the righteousness of God, but they were living like the devil. That can happen in Christianity, too. So spiritual Israel is not based on our heredity. In those days, you were either a Jew or you weren't a Jew. You were either a Jew and anybody who wasn't was among the nations. That's what the word Gentile means, of the nations. And we find here, he says, I've got a people who will be partly, it'll be partly made up of Jews, it'll be partly made up of non-Jews. I'm going to call them spiritual Israel because Christ is the true Israel. And it says, spiritual Israel is addressed here. And since Jesus was not a legal priest by ceremonial law, but a spiritual law and with an oath, the Israel with whom this covenant is made must be a spiritual people by faith, not a literal nation. They accept him as their high priest and sacrifice. There is today a nation called Israel. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are spiritual Israel, you see. There are unbelievers who live there, but there are also believers. Even in the nation of Israel, there are those who accept the Messiah and seek to live in harmony with his will. You know, and that's a double blessing. I don't know if any of you are Jewish or not, but stop and think. A Jew who accepts Jesus as his Messiah is doubly blessed because he is a not only a literal Jew, he's a spiritual Jew. He has a double blessing. And praise the Lord what a Jew accepts his own Messiah and comes back to the heritage that his fathers were practicing, didn't understand perhaps, but they delivered to us Gentiles. You see, it's a great blessing. They accepted him as their high priest and sacrifice. Now Hebrews 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. Now notice that word law. The scripture says that the law is perfect, converting the soul. When I think to myself, oh, I'm committing adultery. Hey, wait, the law says I shouldn't do that. Hmm. If I'm going to be pleasing God, maybe there are a few things I need to drop. Right? It's converting the spirit. It's converting the soul. This is what it's referring to. Uh, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, write them on their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. This is the new covenant. And it's the same as the old covenant. I want to take it off the wall and put it in your mind and heart. Thou shalt not steal is no longer written up there. It's written in here. Whenever I'm about to lift somebody's wallet, I say, ooh, I, I don't think God's going to be happy with that. And so I back away from it. You see, your conscience, your conscience is now operating by a set of principles. That's why 
in the book of Revelation, it talks about the Antichrist as being the lawless one. You see, why? Because they're following the commandments of men rather than the commandments of God. All of this stuff is interrelated and it blends into this covenant experience. This is what God has always wanted to do. He wanted to have his law and character in the hearts that they might be his people and that he might be their God. God has always wanted to dwell with his people and have his people dwell with them. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? Okay? I mean, have you ever married somebody you hated? It doesn't work out too well, right? <laughs> Pulling in two different directions. You can only walk together with those with whom you agree. And God wants us to agree with him. Remember our friend Enoch. It says, he walked with God. And one day God said to him, hey, you know what? Your character fits more in with those that are in heaven than those that are on, on earth. Hey, you know what? We're closer to my house than we are to your house. Why don't you come on home? You see, he invited his friend Enoch home. And this is what God wants to do. This is why he walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve after he created them. He wanted fellowship with them. This is the reason why he had to build the tabernacle in the wilderness so that he could walk with them and lead them to the promised land. And this is the reason why he took on human form so that he could walk with us and guide us to the promised land. And this is the reason why he sends the Holy Spirit Even though he is now up there as our high priest, the Holy Spirit can be with us. And Christ in you, the hope of glory. It all meshes together as he puts it in our hearts. Look at verse 11. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Think on it. That's a marvelous thing. They will live the law and not need to be corrected. You know, you won't have to worry about locking your doors at night. You see. And look at this. Hebrews 8.12 For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their iniquities, I will no more remember. Did you ever stop to think that God has selective forgetfulness? God chooses to forget things. Now, he doesn't have Alzheimer's. You know, he doesn't forget some things. What he does, he says, I have forgiven them. If I have forgiven them, I have wiped out them. The penalty no longer applies to you. Why? Because he has chosen to do it. It's an act of grace on God's part, not an act of works on our part. Look at Romans 11.27. It has a related thought, and he will forgive their unrighteous past as a part of the new covenant. Romans 11.27 says, For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. The related, the covenant and the taking away of our sins are interrelated. Look at verse 13. In that he saith, a new covenant he hath made the first old. Why? Because it no longer depends on you. It depends on him. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old, is ready to vanish away. Aha! Did you catch that? Is ready to vanish away. What does that tell us? What's it saying? 
If I say, supper is ready, what does that mean? Is it all done? It's a promise that there's something in the kitchen, right? But my stomach is still hungry now. But there's a promise that it won't be hungry. You see? What's it saying? It's saying this old covenant, this old sacrificial system is going to vanish away, which means it hasn't happened yet. The sacrifices they were still doing in the temple. And the priests were still offering those sacrifices, which tells us time-wise what? It tells us that this was written before the year 70 A.D., right? What happened in 70 A.D.? Who would destroy the temple? The Romans would come in and destroy the temple. Well, where do you offer sacrifices? In the temple. And who offers it? The priests, you see. And if the temple is destroyed, the priest has no place to work. And what's the sense of bringing sacrifices if you don't have anything to apply it to? So this tells us that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., but it's already vanishing away. The significance of it. The author of Hebrews knew that that sacrificial system was coming to an end and that the temple would be destroyed. So it had to have been written before 70 A.D. And he predicted it. This text seems to imply that the earthly temple was still in existence in Israel and that the Levitical priesthood was still operating because, he says, it is becoming obsolete and is ready to vanish away. So this must have been written before 70 AD when the prophecy reached its fulfillment. Now, since the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the old system was in the process of dying and becoming obsolete until it finally vanished away. You've got to realize it didn't happen all at once. Because, don't forget, Jesus becomes the sacrifice in 31, right? But this is 70 A.D. They had from the 30s to the 70s that the temple was still in operation. But yet, back in the 30s, when Jesus was sacrificed, the temple curtain was ripped. The, the lamb ran away. And already, it was showing that they were just going through the form. The glory had departed from Israel. So we see that this was a process that was taking place to get rid of the sacrificial system. So, in summarizing chapter 8, chapter 8 finally gets to the point of the Hebrew letter. And God presents a better covenant than the sacrificial system. Christ, and being the sacrifice, is the system that is about to uh, take over. This chapter teaches righteousness by faith and the law of priesthood had to be changed to accommodate Jesus' high priesthood. The new covenant is given to spiritual Israel. And anybody can be among that who chooses to be. The Levitical priesthood and temple are about to become obsolete, and the temple would vanish away in 70 AD. Basically, this is a summary of this chapter. Now, why is he talking about this? He's laying the groundwork for chapter 9. In chapter 9, he's going to talk about the Old Covenant sanctuary. Here he's talking about the Old Covenant. Now he's going to talk about the Old Covenant sanctuary. And from there, he's going to start talking about the Old Covenant sacrifices. And then he will move into the New Covenant sanctuary... He will move into the new covenant sacrifices. 
you see. This is why the sanctuary message is so important in these last days. Because it tells that there's a judgment coming. And what manner of men and women ought we to be knowing these things? You see. I know the book seems like it's repetitious, but he's trying to get the point home. That's why he's taken seven chapters to get to the main point. This is the highlight that he's trying to make. And then he will pull the clincher as we go further on. Let's have a word of prayer as we separate. Gracious Father, we thank you for your blessings and mercies. And Lord, we pray that we may be faithful to you, that we may understand the new covenant, that you want to write on our hearts your law and your commandments. You want to write on our character, the character of Jesus, that others will see Christ in us and be drawn to him as he is lifted up in the lives of his people. Help us, Lord, that we may have the strength to be faithful to you and that we may have a part in winning souls for thy kingdom. In Jesus' holy name, amen.